0: Welcome to the New Books
2: Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am delighted today to welcome Professor Joseph L. Graves, Jr. and Professor Alan H. Goodman to the show. Professor Graves is a professor in the Department of Biology at North Carolina A&T State University. He is also a fellow of the Council of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Professor Goodman is a professor of biological anthropology at Hampshire College and a former vice president for academic affairs. He is also a past president of the American Anthropological Association and co directs its public education project on race. Today, we are discussing their new book, Racism, Not Race Answers to Frequently Asked Questions, which was published in 2022 with Columbia University Press. Professor Graves, Professor Goodman, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having us, Adam.
2: Thank you so much, Adam. Could you talk a bit about your backgrounds and why you felt the need to publish a book like this in 2022?
3: Um, Adam, I mean, uh, I was going to say Alan, if you don't mind me starting. Um, I I have, as an evolutionary biologist, have studied uh, the question of adaptation all of my career. I've also was drawn into understanding adaptation in humans and its relationship to concepts of race, Um, in part because I was the first African-American to become a PhD in evolutionary biology, and issues of racism were always, you know, impacting me personally and impacting my professional career. So there was really no way around it for me.
1: And for me, uh, as an anthropologist, as you said, I'm interested in the intersections of culture and biology and races par excellence, unfortunately, perhaps, one or racism as well, one of those places where we see that intersection. Um, my original work, um, I'm really interested in how culture gets under the skin, and particularly large-scale political-economic processes such as inequality and poverty. Um, and I, when I went to school in the 1970s, I took a class with a fellow, George Armelagos, my future mentor, in which he taught that race says biology was a myth. And at that point, I said, oh, that's super interesting, And that, you know, that will mean that we'll stop talking about or attributing, say, differences in health to race. And then about 20 years later, I woke up and realized that never happened and it didn't even happen in anthropology. In fact, many of my fellow biological anthropologists in forensics and biomedicine were, you know, attributing differences in um, skull shapes and infant mortality to differences in quote, racial biology or racial genetics. And so I really got very interested in this question about, um, really understanding the myth of race and how one educates other individuals about that myth.
2: And what audience do you have in mind for this book?
1: Well, I would say pretty much everybody I mean, we um have tried our best to write you know everybody except you know the some individuals, I think we're going to uh, reject out of hand what we have to say um that I think is encapsulated in the title that most of the inequalities we see by race. Uh, from health to incarceration to uh, economic status are due to lived experience and racism and not due to biological race. In some sense, the title should be racism, not biological race, but that biology is implied. So um, we've we've tried to keep the science in there. Um tried our best to not water things down too much but make them explainable, to have primary research in the footnotes as much as possible so that if somebody wants to really dig in, they've got the resources to do it. But I would say, I'm curious if Joe kind of agrees or not, but I, I think our audience is to everybody because everybody really needs, I think, to understand what race is, what race isn't. What we attribute to race is often due to lived experience in racism.
3: Yeah, um, Adam, we really wanted to write a book that could be a tool for people who want to seek justice In their local communities and in the nation uh, and world writ large. And we think that's more people than less people. But, you know, the United States is in a very dangerous moment right now where it has been polarizing around issues whose root is deeply related to people's understanding of the race concept and of how racism works in the United States. And we, we wanted to try to head off that polarization by giving people you know, access to solid scientific facts, sociological facts, anthropological facts, so that you know, we could move in a direction of racial justice and reconciliation.
2: So the title is Racism Not Race. Could you define racism and race for listeners?
3: When we talk about racism, we're talking about a uh, structural, systematic um, condition that is carried out by people who have political and social power. So it's important to recognize that anybody can be a bigot. Anybody can hate other people irrationally. But racism requires social and political and economic power to carry out uh, this concept of race uh, has always been, you know, confused for most people. There is a biological concept of race, and it, you know, developed with the course of the development of biological science. Um, it really begins to take off after the ages of discovery, European ages of discovery, and it goes through several phases in its existence, including looking at the physical traits of individuals, looking at their geography, where they come from in the 20th century, beginning with the neo-Darwinian synthesis, which unified Mendelian genetics with natural selection, looking at the frequency of genes within populations and between populations, and then later in the 20th century, using evolutionary phylogenetic techniques to ask questions of whether any groups within a given species can be considered unique evolutionary lineages. And so I want to make it really clear that uh, this is a heuristic concept that works in some species. And so there are definitely species that have biological races. Our species, okay, modern humans, is not one of them. And so that has to be understood in the context of the social definition of race or the socially constructed race concept, which arbitrarily utilizes aspects of physical appearance, geography, language, culture, religion, but only does so in the service of social dominance hierarchies. And that's why we say that it was racism that created race. And and by that, we mean social definitions of race.
1: Yeah, I add a couple little things to that excellent summary. Um, you know, I I still like the very simple definition of racism as power, prejudice plus power. But what we, I think, don't realize is how many different ways that racism can be manifest. And so um, to in the Frequently, we think of, oh, racism really requires some, you know, police force or sl- enslavement and, you know, that bodies are actually kind of prevented from doing certain things. And yes, that's clear power over one's lives and inequality, and prejudice plus power. But then there's all sorts of ideological manifestations of racism or types of racism that are, I think, more subtle, more embedded, maybe even more intractable and harder to understand. And it's, in some sense, it's those types of racism, those implicit biases that then affect structures and institutions that, for me, I think are are really important to bring to earth, bring to light, you know, to bring up to the surface so that we can really explore them and understand their consequences.
2: And so you make the point that race is both real and not real. Can you explain what you mean by this?
3: Um, When we talk about race being real... We're really talking about, in, in, in the case of humans, we're talking about the biological, uh, uh, sorry, backwards. We're talking about the social definition of race, which has biological impacts. So, for example, where one lives can have a powerful determinant upon the likelihood that you're exposed to pollution, bad air quality, bad water, like you know inner cities like Flint, Michigan, where you know residents were being um, given elevated uh, concentrations of lead in their drinking water for, for decades. Um, it also has powerful impacts in, particularly in racialized societies with regard to opportunity in uh, education. Uh, whether you will get hired for a job or not. Um, you know one study in the 1990s showed that a European American man who had done time in prison um, had a higher likelihood of being hired compared to an African American man who didn't ne- had never gone to prison and had an excellent resume for the job in question. So uh, race in the social sense, plays a powerful role in racialized societies with regard to an individual's life choices. This impacts how long you live. This impacts um, your health during the time that you're living and so on. And so um, that's the real part. What's not real is the biological conception in humans. In other words, the groups that are called races in our species are not biological races. And that's the part that's the myth.
2: So you write about the history of the concept of race and how it developed over time. Could you talk a little bit about that history?
3: Yes. We um, talk about how the yeah, human beings you know, had encountered people with different physical features, you know, for a very long time. And particularly if we think about uh, in the, you know, the cultures of the the Hebrews, the Greeks and the Romans, um, you never saw the emergence of a a biological race concept within humans. Um, And, you know, essentially people were characterized by whether they accepted Greek or Roman or Hebrew culture or not. And so these groups weren't rigidly hierarchically related to each other. That hierarchical relation really begins after the European voyages of discovery, um, beginning in the 15th century, and particularly the establishment of colonialism in the New World and the transatlantic slave trade. And that's when we began to see um, naturalist theories of race, along with also religious theories. And one of the points that people seem not to recognize is that prior to 1859, all biology was special creationist in its content. And so naturalists were thinking about human biological variation, which they were calling race, from that lens and not that of modern evolutionary thinking. So Alan, did you have anything that you'd like to add about the history of the race idea?
1: Yeah. One of the things that I like to do is make a distinction between uh, the development of race as a legal concept and the how scientists got involved. And as Joe said, you know, there are natural scientists involved in studying other organisms and varieties and types and things of that sort. And um, but in the americas what happened with slavery and colonization is it became a legal necessity or you know political necessity to to invent the idea of race or to make it legally an entity. And for example, in 1691, we see this quite clearly in the Virginia colonies and the law that uh, that um, made it illegal for enslaved Africans to marry uh, Europeans and especially indentured Europeans. We know of course that many African, enslaved African women were raped by white men. Um, That was not what the law was going after, but rather, you know, marriages between African, enslaved Africans and European Americans. And so at this point, all Africans are lumped together as one race or one group. All Europeans are lumped together as one group. Scientists, really get into the race business later on um and especially we see this um with in with the with the first individuals that try to provide an ethical defense uh ethical case against slavery And then others get involved to try to ethically defend slavery by saying that God or evolution created different races with different abilities and that Europeans were more able to govern. Other so-called races were less able to govern. And, you know, this is sort of hogwash pseudoscience of the 1800s. The problem is that it continues um, even today, and for instance, around time of Jim Crow, it was really prevalent to see, you know, Studies of black brains, anatomical connect, collections that studied differences between, in quotes, black brains and white brains, to still even in the 1900s, to try to show that that the brains are inherently different one from the other, and to continue to justify lynching, Jim Crow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: So. You've, you've published this book in 2022, and as you've just mentioned, the history of race develops over time. And I suppose my sort of unfortunate question is, why is there still the need to publish a book like this in 2022?
3: Well, honestly, Adam, I can tell you that I, I wrote um, my first book on race, The Emperor's New Clothes, in 2001. Uh, And then I wrote a follow-up of the race myth in 2004. And when I finished the race myth, I really thought that I would never have to write another book about the biology of human biological variation and social conceptions of race again. But American society uh, moved in one sense forward with the election of Barack Obama to be the first person of not completely European descent to be president of the United States. But there was a violent backlash against the Obama presidency, which brought forward Donald Trump and a resurgence of white supremacist ideology across the nation. Um, And so Alan called me in 2019, and he was thinking along the same lines I was, that there was a need for a book that addressed these ongoing misconceptions about race simply and in a question and answer format. And so we agreed to write Racism, Not Race um, together in 2019. And that was, by the way, before the George Floyd murder, which really changed the tenor of, of Americans with regard to the reality of racial injustice in the United States.
1: And I would add that we would think that understanding race, human variation racism. I mean, these are such fundamental concepts to not just in the United States, but in the world that everybody would know that, you know, a fourth or fifth or sixth grader would know that. And in fact, when I've gone and taught just briefly 40 minutes to a fourth grade class, they get that human biological variation. You know, what we see is a reality, but race is an idea, you know, and that idea, you know, maybe in 1700, you could be excused for thinking, not being able to separate human biological variation from the concept of race. But in 2022 there's no excuse you know we simply know that hu- humans don't have races so um you know so yeah I'm as kind of confused about this or not confused but concerned that basic ideas for which democracy is based on are not being taught. And so I guess one can ask the question why they're not being taught. And the power structures like, like the existing status quo, that, you know, they, they, they seem to think that that's functional. But I would say in the end, it's not going to be functional. That, you know, the levels of socioeconomic inequality by class, the levels of inequality we see by race, those are things that are already eroding the structures of the United States and will continue. So I think Unfortunately, this book was really necessary. It won't be the last word. I hope there's more discussion. I'm glad we're doing this podcast. Um, But I, you know, both Joe and I absolutely thought in 2019, as we do today, that it was really necessary to write it and write it as clearly as possible.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: One area even, quote unquote, progressive people turn to in order to sort of defend a folk concept of race is medicine. And you have a whole chapter addressing questions dealing with, with race and medicine. Can you speak to things like the distribution maybe of sickle cell anemia that come up time and time again in discussions about race? Yeah,
1: let, let me talk about sickle cell as a example that, that many people bring up as kind of the example of the race specific disease. And really, this is part of a history of medicine and science, which it was always thought that certain diseases get certain races. In fact, you know, there goes back and even to points where. Um, Individuals were surprised that African Americans were getting cancer because cancer was seen as a disease of civilization, and of course, in quotes, African Americans didn't have, you know, weren't exposed to civilization. Yeah, cockamamie, crazy. Um, Sickle cell, Um, you know, sickle cell is we now know is um, due to a genetic change in the hemoglobin molecule there's four chains of amino acids it's a change in the beta chain beta chain that changes the shape of the the red blood cell makes it a little bit less able to transport oxygen which is what red the hemoglobin molecule is all about Um, and so the question became why did this this um Allele developed so frequently, and why did it develop in certain parts of the world? Initially, when it was discovered by people like Cooley and other people who first, like, did the microscopy of red blood cells, they even they were so embedded in the idea that this must be a disease of Africanness when that when Italians and people from the Mediterranean were found to have sickle cell, they said, oh, you must be lying about your ancestry, you must have African ancestry. Well, here's what we know the truth about sickle cell, is that um, sickle cell, we know, is an adaptation to endemic malaria. And the areas in which we get endemic malaria are tropical places in which you've cleared forests, for agricultural lands and large human populations are coming in contact with the Anopheles mosquito that carries the malaria parasite. So where does that happen? it doesn't happen all over Africa. Rather, it happens in one plot, one zone in Africa, East Central Africa, that happens to be the area where most enslaved Africans come from. But it also is found in the circum-Mediterranean, the Arabian Peninsula, in Southern India, and it's not found in North Africa or South Africa or East Africa. So, Sickle cell, to say sickle cell is sort of a race-specific disease is totally fallacious. It just doesn't, it's not true. But in fact, sickle cell is a great story of how humans adapt to environmental conditions. But those adaptations occurred in different parts of the world. So long story short, sickle cell has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with evolution and adaptation.
3: Yeah, and Adam, I've been writing on uh, racial misconceptions in medicine since the 1990s. And what's really interesting is that now, finally, um, we're beginning to get a hearing in prominent medical venues. So, the last year, twenty twenty one, I spent with my colleague, Dr. Andrea Good, uh, sorry, Andrea Derup, of the um, pathology department at Duke University doing a revision of Robin's basic pathology. This is one of the most widely used textbooks um, of pathology in the world. And we removed a lot of racial misconceptions from the 10th edition, so the 11th edition will no longer feature those false categorizations of disease with socially defined race. In addition, um, she was a real pioneer and convincing the other editors that it was really necessary to include uh, images and what we call inclusive images of diseases that manifest in the skin so that people could actually, training physicians could see that some of these common conditions look very different when a person has more melanin in their skin compared to the fair skin of Northern Europeans. Um, We also had a perspective piece published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, uh, in early February, where we called out racial misconceptions in medicine, and we made the points that Alan and I made in our book in the New England Journal of Medicine. We have another paper coming out this month in the journal Academic Medicine where we reviewed the use of, of racial terms in one of the most widely used uh, textbooks of pediatrics and demonstrated that there were you know, rampant problems and again, made suggestions for how those things can be repaired. So the long and short of it is you know, socially defined race, and disease do not correlate with each other. Although, as I pointed out in the earlier portion of this conversation, because socially defined race has biological impacts, socially defined race or membership in socially defined race can raise your probability of getting particularly Um, diseases that are the result of social conditions. So things like, for example, heart disease or cancer or stroke. That doesn't mean that people of African descent or East Asian descent or um, Latino descent are more likely genetically to get these conditions. It means that the social conditions of life that they undergo in racialized societies can contribute to whether they're more likely to get these conditions.
2: In chapter 11, you imagine a world without racism. Before we get there, I'd first like to ask, what would a world with biological race look like?
3: So uh, you're you're asking us to, to essentially tell you if the human species had biological races, what would the world look like? There's really no way to predict what it would be like. All that would simply mean is that there would be more genetic variation between human groups than there currently is. That wouldn't necessarily mean that any specific group would be better at one thing compared to another thing. So so there's simply no way to know how the world would be different if biological races were real. We certainly know how the world operates today because people think that biological races are real. So, for example, I mean, one way you could think about it is if you went back in time and thought about when anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens, came in contact with Homo neanderthalensis. Now, the question of whether the Neanderthals were really a biological race that had adapted to living in conditions in Europe, or whether they were, in fact, a separate species from modern humans is not really settled. Um, We know that Neanderthals uh, and sapiens, you know, hybridize with each other in areas of contact, but, you know, species can do that. And of course, biological races could do that. And certainly in the case of the Neanderthals, from what we think about what they look like physically, they had prominent physical differences compared to anatomically modern humans. So that would be one thing that you could... possibly occur if we really did have biological races we could have far more prominent physical appearance differences than we currently have
1: I think the the thought experiment of if we had human races is an interesting one and I could imagine some utopian science fiction in which we had different human races or say the Neanderthals had survived and um and that we all kind of lived in harmony and egalitarianness and things of that sort but unfortunately i mean i'm 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 an optimist about the human species but one of the things i know is that we have captured we've set on hierarchies and we um would probably end up, I think, back to some sort of embedded hierarchies the problem one of the problems with that in kind of quote liberal authors like Nicholas Wade and even going back to the bell curve that say, look at there are differences in intelligence on average between groups is that they um, go from averages to individuals. I mean, individuals all vary. And so even if, for example, we knew that there was human, that, that races, you know, that humans did have races, the amount of variation between the races would still probably be quite great. So any one individual, you know, the, the group average would be essentially meaningless. But I th- I think, The main point that I want to say is about um, we've never been able to separate the concept of race, at least from humans, from the idea of hierarchy of, you know, hierarchy of difference. And until we do that, um, I I would not look forward to a world with
2: races. So now turning to Chapter 11, can you indicate for listeners just a bit of what a world without racism would look like?
3: Well, one of the most important things um, to be able to move in the direction of of truly egalitarian society is to have a vision of what that society should look like. And in, in a world without racism, I mean, we we'd go to the words of you know previous thinkers on this question with a, with regard to equality of opportunity. So every child born in, and here I'm speaking about the United States, that every child born in the United States would have the opportunity to live up to their potential without their socially defined race being the primary, primary indicator of what's going to happen to them. Now, I also argue that that can't happen in the current existing political economy. In other words, I don't think capitalism can ever get rid of racism. The two are so deeply tied together. That we're really talking about a world that would be a, a society that would be operating on socialist principles. The idea that everyone should be given, you know, adequate health care. Everyone should be given decent places to live. Everyone should be guaranteed access to clean water and clean air. Everyone should be given the opportunity to have meaningful employment that allows them to enjoy living in our society instead of you know, having to make ends meet, you know, making decisions about whether you have heat this month or whether you have food this month. So that's the society that I envision, one where every person has a, a, the ability to, to live up to their potential and, and a society that values the potential of all of its citizens.
1: A- absolutely. That opportunity is no longer constrained by race. And I think we would see that when we begin to see close, serious closings of gaps in all of the myriad statistical differences we see um, in health, in wealth, in incarceration, education, etc. cetera. Let me just give one example of how this might look is that we. In most countries, we know that there's a class difference in height. You know, you know there's, you know, height is controlled on a group level by genetics, but also environmental conditions. And so, you know, classically in the UK, you can see not only is there a height difference in, I'm sorry, is there a difference in wealth in education by socioeconomic status, but there's also a difference in life expectancy and even something like height, which um, has to do with childhood nutrition and things of that sort. Sweden, a number of years ago, produced some data suggesting that there was no longer a difference in height by parental occupation. Now, imagine the same thing um, in the United States where we get to a point where there's no longer differences in infant mortality or maternal mortality um, by race. And at that point, that might be you know we're approaching a world not just without racism but a world in which the idea of race has less salience less important
2: and i live i currently live in germany where it's actually very difficult to find racially aggregated data could you speak to what role racially aggregated data plays in determining the continuities of racism?
1: Yeah, so many a lot of people would think that well, collecting data by race doesn't that reinforce the importance of race or the validity of race, or even, you know, somehow leads to animosities and racism and things of that sort. And I think they have it exactly backward. Um, You know, I've talked a lot to people in France, in, in European countries that do not do nearly as good a job of collecting aggregating data by race. And I think that is really problematic. Because without doing so, you can't track these racial inequalities that we're talking about. It makes it much, much harder to do so. So we know they're there, but governments, et cetera, have less ability to deal with it. Um, to say a little bit about the U.S., um, the US, in the United States, we have from 1790, the first census, we've collected data aggregated data by race, Uh, it changes every 10 years. Um, But these data are not just for census and use of allocation of resources, but are also used in health and housing and education, et cetera. So these become really important to understand and track racial inequalities. They're far from perfect. Because race is a chameleon, you know, it can't be defined. In fact, the Office of Management and Budget Directive 15, which is the manual for the official race and ethnic categories in the United States, actually says in its small print that these classifications are neither scientific nor anthropological, yet they are super important and have been shown to be super important to track inequalities. So, um, I, I would like to say you in Germany are are ahead of us, but I think at this point, no, you can't ignore race. You have, you, um, ignoring race won't get rid of racism. Yeah. It, it just perpetuates it.
3: Yeah. And in fact, you know, when people ignore race, and here we mean socially defined race. When people ignore that, that's probably a strong indicator of how much racism is going on in the country, because that means that, you know, scholars and those in in responsible public positions aren't recognizing the sociological impacts of racism in their nation and, and why data needs to be collected to be able to redress it
2: this book is spectacular and there's so much in it that we just cannot cover unfortunately due to time i you touch on everything you touch on anti-semitism you touch on islamophobia you touch on genetics you touch on genetic variation and how that's different from race you talk about the history of race in so much detail i really really love this book there is one final question i have for you which is a new books network tradition which is what are you working on now
3: well um adam i have a a book that's published going to be published in the fall by basic it's sort of biopic it's entitled a voice in the wilderness a pioneering biologist explains how evolution can help us solve our biggest problems I also have another uh, book manuscript under review right now that's going to address critical race theory in the United States.
1: And and Adam, thank you so much. Um, I in terms of questions around race and racism and like Joe, you know, we've been at this for 30, 40 years and you know, we would like to, you know, challenge other parts of our Brains and things of that sort, but this one is so important. And and for me, I'm I'm interested in moving institutions, powerful institutions that I think may have some consequence to addressing race. Um, UNESCO has a initiative on race and racism. Um, they produce very important statements, that worldwide statements about race, uh, after the Holocaust and World War II. And so I've been working with them to try to see if we can draft a new statement on race. The, I've worked with the American Anthropological Association. We're now trying to do a can anthropological statement on race that would incorporate the archeologists, the linguists, the biological anthropologists, etc. Um, And I'm also getting back to my bread and butter of really rethinking how biology and culture intersect.
2: Well, I hope to have you both on again in the future. The book is Racism, Not Race, published with Columbia University Press in 2022. Professor Graves, Professor Goodman, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you, Adam. Pleasure. Again, Adam, thanks for having us.